A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Livonian War of 1558 to 1583, part one of four. In a remote corner of northeastern Europe, near the village of Ergame, today in northern Latvia on the 2nd of August, 1560, was fought a battle largely forgotten to history, yet which marks an important milestone. On the one side was a group of Russian cavalry sent by Tsar Ivan IV, also known as Ivan the Terrible. On the other, a few hundred members of the Livonian Order of the Knights of the Sword and 500 auxiliaries. The Livonian Order were a German crusading organisation who in former years had led the Northern Crusades. Over a period of many years, from the 12th to 15th century, they had transformed the southern Baltic coastline, conquered most of the territory there, and brought Christianity to a formerly pagan part of the world. Yet by the 1500s, they were in serious decline. The knight's commander-in-chief leading up to the battle, Philip Charles von Berle, was so confident with defeating the Russians, he declined to meet up with a nearby Allied force. His reconnaissance was poor, and he did not appreciate the extent to which he was outnumbered by the enemy. As described by a contemporary, quote, On August the 2nd, 30 Crusader horsemen went out to forage some 17 miles from camp. They spotted 500 Russians on the other side of a stream. Both sides were so close that they opened fire. One Russian was killed, and the rest retreated across a hayfield back towards the main body. Eighteen Germans turned back and twelve were left to pursue the enemy. The first group brought word of what had happened and the commander set out with three hundred horsemen intending to engage the Russians. They first attacked the enemy pickets and drove them back onto the main group. The Germans followed in hot pursuit and were surrounded by the enemy. All escape cut off. Guns and sabres were used in close combat but the larger group wore down the smaller group and many Germans were slain. End quote. The Battle of Hermes, as the event is known to history, was a fatal defeat for the Order. The numbers lost were not great, but the fallen knights were the core of a fighting force which had been steadily depleted over the decades. In the one battle, half of the Order's entire force were killed or captured. 120 knights fell into Muscovite hands, including Charles von Belle. Dragged to Moscow, the leaders were executed on the orders of a van, and their bodies left to rot in the street. 
with the Livonian order already reduced in strength to just a few hundred experienced fighters, one such mistake was all that it took to seal their fate. And it now became clear they no longer had the manpower to hold on to their territories. The resulting power vacuum sparked a contest for control of the coastline of the south-eastern Baltic, especially the region of Livonia, which today comprises the states of Estonia and Latvia. This was fought between the nearby powers of Muscovy, Sweden, Denmark and Poland-Lithuania in a series of so-called Northern Wars, which ran from 1558 to 1721. The first of these conflicts, known as the Livonian Wars, is the subject of this set of episodes. By the time of the Battle of Hermes, the Teutonic Knights had long since lost its raison d'etre. With the conversion of Lithuania's pagan rulers to Catholicism, the purpose of the original crusade was achieved. It was therefore difficult to justify the wars against Christian Poland and Lithuania, who had been in dynastic union since 1385. The start of the decline of the order can be marked as the Battle of Grunwald, also known as Tannenberg, 1410. As the supply of recruits for new knights began to dry up in the 15th century, both Poland-Lithuania and the ambitious Grand Duchy of Muscovy became increasingly serious threats to their existence. The pressure was greatest in Prussia, the region which today is in northern Poland, along the southern Baltic coastline. It was there, specifically in the city of Danzig, modern-day Gdansk, where a popular revolt sparked off a conflict known as the Thirteen Years' War, 1454-66, to 66, between the Kingdom of Poland on one side and Denmark and the Teutonic Order on the other. At the end of the war, the Teutonic Order were further weakened and lost control of the western half of Prussia to Poland. Then, in the late 1400s, Grand Prince Ivan III of Muscovy embarked on a systematic campaign of expansion to his north. With a mix of shrewd diplomacy and calculated violence, he made significant inroads into the Baltic region. In 1477, he gained dominance over the proudly independent city of Novgorod, and then, in the first years of the 1500s, seized some territory from neighbouring Lithuania, as described in a previous podcast on the Russo-Lithuanian Wars. One of the problems for the Teutonic Knights as it entered the 16th century was its lack of unity. The Livonian Order, formerly known as the Sword Brothers, had been absorbed into the larger Teutonic Order in 1237. By the 1500s they had become a semi-autonomous branch and controlled Livonia, leaving the original knights with just eastern Prussia. The Teutonic Knights were in a particularly vulnerable situation, adjacent to Poland, who were eyeing up the rest of their territory. Tensions simmered between the two sides for years, with each one blaming the other for various transactions such as burning border villages or stealing cattle. The Knights made no secret of their desire to recover lost territories or even to become a great power again and in return the rulers of Poland were making their own plans to destroy the hated order altogether. The main thing which prevented outright conflict was the immense cost of warfare, which neither could easily afford. The nobles of Poland had more powers than was the case in most states of the time, 
and were always reluctant to provide their king with the finance required for any foreign adventures. When in December 1510 the Grand Master of the Teutonic Knights died, the man chosen to replace him was Albrecht of Hohenzollern, who came from one of the most important families of Germany, and was the cousin of King Sigismund I of Poland. Albrecht refused to submit to pressures from the Kingdom of Poland to give away Eastern Prussia by negotiation. As war over the order's existence appeared inevitable, he made strenuous efforts to secure allies and carried on protracted negotiations with Emperor Maximilian I. Fighting broke out in December 1519, but the knights held on and were granted a four-year truce early in 1521. To try and gain support for a permanent settlement, Albrecht travelled around Germany. There he made the acquaintance of Protestant reformers, including in Wittenberg the leader Martin Luther. Luther and his fellow reformers were highly critical of the way the church had become institutionalised and of religious organisations, including crusading orders and monasteries, who justified their existence to overall church authority. And their radical ideas were spreading rapidly in northern Germany. Martin Luther urged the Grand Master to convert his land, Eastern Prussia, into a Protestant and hereditary realm, pay homage to the King of Poland and to create a Duchy of Prussia. Albrecht was persuaded by the idea and considered how he could sell the idea to the rest of the order. In fact, many of his fellow knights, angry about church corruption, were open to conversion. Albrecht thus took steps to prepare the members of his order for reform proposals and allowed Lutheran preachers to deliver sermons among them. The motivation of Albrecht was not just becoming a duke, but also recognition that times had moved on and that running a state based on celibate monastic order was anachronistic and no longer viable. The Pope and the Emperor warned him against such a course, but the knights in Prussia, as well as cities and nobles, were decisively in favour. Albrecht's decision resolved two issues. Firstly, the problem of the order's debt was solved by the confiscation of the remaining ecclesiastical properties. Secondly, the threat of a Polish invasion was removed by incorporating East Prussia into the Polish kingdom. And so, on the 10th of April, 1525, Duke Albrecht took the Oath of Allegiance in the city of Krakow, a scene later immortalised by the 19th century Polish painter Jan Mateko which I have put on the History of Europe Key Battles Facebook page. The new duke was left in de facto control of his realm. He maintained his own army, currency, assembly and a more or less independent foreign policy, and the administrative system hardly changed at all. The most profound change was the introduction of Lutheran reforms. A handful of knights who did not go along with Albrecht's decision left Prussia. Those who remained were given fiefs or offices, and a few married and founded families. Henceforth, Western Prussia, more closely linked to the Polish crown, was known as Royal Prussia, whilst Eastern Prussia was known as Ducal Prussia. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I now turn to the other half of the old Teutonic order, to Livonia. By the 1500s, Livonia lacked any real central authority since the Livonian order had to share power with the Livonian Confederation, a body which regulated coinage and passed common laws for commerce and crime, but lacked an executive branch which could determine foreign policy or unite the region's forces under a single command. The Livonian order only had control of about two-thirds of the land. The Archbishopric of Riga was in charge of about one-sixth of the land, and four other bishoprics, Curland, Tartu, Sarema and Raval, together about a sixth each. The political situation is described by Andreas Plakans in A Concise History of the Baltic States. Quote, the order system of governments rested on a network of 58 fortified castles scattered throughout the northern, Estonian and southern Latvian parts of the Confederation. Lines of authority were anything but clear, and the flow of revenue from the general population to the highest levels of both controlling corporations was a constant source of friction. The order held land from the church, but always sought greater autonomy. The church, having no independent military force of its own, relied on the order for defence, but at the same time asserted its spiritual authority. The three most important cities of the Confederation, Riga, Rival, which is today Tallinn, and Tartu, retained vassal status to the order or the church, but repeatedly and unsuccessfully tried to escape their jurisdictions. End quote. Another problem for the Livonian order was that it was a small Roman Catholic organisation in the midst of a fiercely Protestant corner of Europe. Not only were the Duchy of Prussia and the Scandinavian kingdoms to the north Lutheran, but also most of the inhabitants of the Livonian cities and some of the nobility. Furthermore, several areas in Germany which had been important for recruiting knights, especially Holstein and Lower Saxony, were now Protestant. The order resorted to paying for mercenaries but lacked the resources to have as many as they would have liked. Fortunately for them, they were led by an able grandmaster named Walter von Plettenberg from 1494 to 1535. He was both an able field commander and a skilled diplomat who sought to create a coalition of Swedes, Danes and Lithuanians to fend off aggression from Grand Prince Ivan III of Muscovy. Unfortunately, the Danes and Swedes were at war, and such an alliance was not the priority of Lithuania. Von Plettenberg also found it difficult to raise the funds from the Livonian merchants or bishops which he required for defence of the realm. Only after November 1501, when invading Russians defeated a small army of knights and devastated central Livonia, did the city of Riga hurriedly provide the credit which the order needed to recruit mercenaries. 
The following September, von Plettensburg's forces met the Russians at Lake Smolina, south of Peskov. The result was a bloody stalemate, but the Knights had done enough to force the Russians to come to an agreement on the border between Livonia and Muscovy. The Russians realised that taking Livonia would not be easy and shifted their attention towards Lithuania, giving the Livonian Confederation a much-needed respite to deal with its internal problems. Livonia was therefore able to enjoy a period of relative peace for one half a century. It was, however, only a matter of time before Livonia would face the threat of invasion again. The surge in Baltic trade from the mid-15th century heightened the region's strategic importance, for great wealth was available to anyone able to control the ports which channelled goods from the vast hinterlands of Poland, Lithuania and Muscovy. Such goods included grain, timber, pitch, wax, hides and furs. In the 15th century, this trade had been dominated by a naval merchant organisation known as the Hanseatic League, which at its height formed a network of several hundred cities and towns, with privileged trading offices from London to Novgorod. By 1500, however, local orders had successfully begun to tap into this wealth for themselves. Perhaps the most contentious of locations in the Baltic Sea was the Sound, the principal channel between the North Sea and the Baltic, which today separates Denmark and Sweden. From the late 1420s, the Danish monarchy had made great profit from levying the famous Sound Jews on ships entering and leaving the Baltic, sometimes blocking the passage of vessels from states with which Denmark was in dispute. Russia tried to establish a route around the top of Norway to the Russian port of Archangel, but with little success. Peace held in Livonia for the first half of the 16th century, but was once again threatened when a new Tsar of Russia began to exercise personal authority in the late 1540s. Ivan IV, or Ivan the Terrible as he is also known, devoted most of the 1550s to conquests elsewhere, the Tatar Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan, as described in the previous podcast. Having completed these conquests, the only question is where he would attack next, and it was Livonia, he decided, which looked the weakest target. In late 1557, the Livonian Confederation received reports that a Russian army, together with a large contingent of Tatar cavalry, were marching through the snow, heading their way, and immediately decided to mobilise their troops. The Grand Master of the Order at the time was named Wilhelm von Furstenberg. Aware of the scarce military resources at his disposal, he acted cautiously. His defensive strategy meant that his forces were scattered and would be outnumbered wherever the Russians decided to attack. The nobility, who made up the cavalry force, were hesitant to fight open battles, since one defeat could deplete their forces so much that their homes would then be left defenceless. The chosen plan was to defend the fortified towns and castles, use the small forces available to harass the invaders and hope that the Russian supply system would break down during bad weather and force the Tsar to order a retreat. The Russians headed home late 1557 for the winter, but returned early the year after. They plundered as they went through eastern Livonia without meeting any real resistance and headed further north to lay siege to Narva, today in the far northeastern corner of Estonia. 
First they bombarded the city walls, prompting the Lavinians to appeal for a truce and to offer to pay the Russians tribute. On receiving reinforcements, the defenders of Nava became more confident and fired shots back, killing a Russian soldier. Ivan cancelled the negotiation and resumed the siege. Nava's defences were strong and may have held out, had not an accidental fire broken out. As the city was burning, the Russians took advantage of the situation and on May the 12th stormed the walls. Having sacked the city, Ivan's general accepted the surrender of the castle in return for the free withdrawal of the garrison and of the people who had taken refuge there. Over the next two months, one town after another fell to the Russians as Livonian resistance crumbled. By October they controlled eastern Livonia and had secured for themselves a route to the Baltic. They hastily enlarged the harbour installations at Nava and encouraged merchants to come and trade from as far as France and the Netherlands, threatening to disrupt the lines of trade in the sea and the interests of the powers already there. The Livonians desperately sought help from outside but failed to get military assistance from either Denmark or Sweden, and they could not accept Poland's demand of giving away the port of Riga. At the same time, they elected a new leader, Gotthard Kettler. Kettler was a Protestant who had been stationed in Germany for some time and brought back with him the latest innovations for reforming the military. He was the only commander of the order who seemed able to achieve victories, albeit minor ones, against the marauding Russian cavalry units, and his courage in the field was unequalled. In January the next year, 1559, the Russian army renewed its advance, this time heading from Dorpat westwards towards Riga, then past that well-fortified city into the provinces of Semigalia and Kurland, where they captured several ill-prepared fortresses. As they plundered through the countryside, the combined Russian and Tatar forces caused devastation and earned themselves a reputation for barbarity. Perhaps such a reputation was deliberately stoked by the Livonian order, who were keen to exaggerate and to exploit outrage at any atrocities committed by the invaders. The majority population, the common peasants, felt no allegiance to the order, and some would have welcomed the Russians as liberators of German control. Kettler hired some several more hundred mercenaries from Germany, together with a hundred gunners, with whom he managed to recapture one fortress, Weisenberg. He in fact developed an effective strategy for dealing with the Russian invaders, improvising cavalry tactics to limit the damage Russian horsemen could do. Relying on superior knowledge of the land and ability to fall back to castles, they aggressively harassed the enemy wherever they could find them. This prevented the Russians from spreading out to loot and burn, thus restricting their ability to live off the land and offering some protection to the Livonian peasants. In addition, Kettler persuaded the Lithuanians to help defend territory in the south and Swedes land in the north. For all this, it was clear that overall the Russians had an overwhelming advantage in terms of men and firepower, and one serious defeat would be fatal to the order. The imminent potential collapse of Livonia stirred its neighbours into action. Denmark went into negotiation with local leaders to get themselves a foothold back in the region. Sweden and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth likewise began to mobilise. At the same time, the Tatars from Crimea, taking advantage of Russia's focus on the north, increased their raiding across the southern borders of Muscovy. 
This forced Ivan to divert some of his forces to the south and to man a defensive line on the river Oka. It probably explains at least partly the reason for Ivan the Terrible to make a sudden change of tack in early 1559. In March of that year, with the invasion going as successfully as he could have wished, he decided to offer a truce to Livonia and her neighbours. The Russian invasion rapidly lost momentum and enabled her rivals in the Baltic to arm and organise their campaign. Anxious for the future of Livonia, in summer 1559, the Grand Master and the remnants of the Livonian Order concluded a treaty, the Treaty of Vilnius, in which the Order agreed to military cooperation with Poland-Lithuania and replaced what remained of the Order under Polish-Lithuanian protection at the cost of ceding some of its lands. At the same time, King Sigismund I Augustus of Poland entered into negotiation with the Crimean Tatars for an alliance against Muscovy. Then, in November 1559, Kettler, at the head of Livonian troops, which had been reinforced during the truce with Russia, destroyed a Russian army near Dorpat. Ivan responded by launching an even stronger campaign against Livonia in 1560. The Livonian defeat to the Russians at the Battle of Ermes in that campaign, and with it the loss of half their remaining military force, effectively sealed their fate. But the question of who would replace them was up for grabs. The Northern Crusade was over, and the Northern Wars had begun. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. As ever, it's great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, or the blog www.historyeurope.net, or Twitter at HistoryEuropeKB, or you can write directly to me, Carl at HistoryEurope.net. If you're able to give some financial assistance to the podcast, then be great if you could go onto Patreon and help out there. It will help to fund the research for the podcast. A way you can help for free is by giving a review to the podcast on iTunes. Thank you to the 200 people in the States alone who have given the podcast a rating. And to the many people who have also given a written review. I really do appreciate it. I hope you can join me next week for the second part when I will be given some background on the region of Scandinavia. Till then, have a great week, all the best, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.